I'd like to welcome everyone to this beautiful, beautiful uh, service now. We're going to open up our Bibles today. We're going to be turning to the St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. That is where our lesson will come from. St. Paul the Apostle made a very significant statement in chapter number 1, verse 16 of his epistle to the Romans. He said, For I am not ashamed, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Judean first, those were the indigenous Israelites living in the land of Judea at that time, and also to the Greek. They were the Greek-speaking Israelites of the dispersion who had settled in and around Asia Minor and had filled up the, the area there with uh, quite a, a multitude of people. So that is what Paul said. He was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now I wonder where that places us today. John MacArthur gave a lesson from his pulpit in California not too many days ago. And he was talking about a survey that had been conducted across America. And it contained four questions. I thought I would run these questions by you today and you can examine where you might fit on each of the four questions. So if you have anything to write on, you could uh, write these down and then see where you are. And then I'll tell you where you fit in regards to where America is today. Now the survey that I speak of was to Evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians are, are Christians who are generally considered to be the strongest adherents to the Bible. They're the more zealous among the Christians of America, alleged to be. I have no way of knowing the sincerity of that statement, but evangelicals are supposed to be the leading edge of what we'll call biblical Christianity in our country today. So they ask among all these millions of evangelical Christians, they ran four questions by them. Here were the four questions. It would be nice for you to see what your answer would be to each one of those as I read them out. I believe that man is born into a state of innocence. The idea that we are born into a state of innocence when we arrive in the world. And that, of course, is yes or no. The Bible is the literal word of God. Yes or no. Number three, God accepts all religions 
if the people are sincerely believers of their religion. That was number three. Number four, Jesus was a great teacher, but was not really God. Yes or no? To those questions, this national survey among millions of evangelicals, 65% of the evangelicals polled affirmed that we are born into innocence, that we are not born with sin nature. But to the second question, the Bible is a literal book. 55% of the people said yes. To the question, God accepts all religious beliefs so long as they are sincere, 56% of all evangelicals answered yes. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43% believed he was a great teacher, but not God. Now, you can see by those percentages that the alleged most Christian body in America is really not Christian. Really not Christian. So we might ask the question, where does that really place us then? As a people, as a nation, if the most Christian people among us believe that we're born into innocence, that sin is going to be acquired, and we're perfect until we acquire it, that the Bible is not... Now, 55% believe the Bible was not literally true. Among those people, some of them would say, well, there may or may not have been a Noah. We don't know for sure if Adam and Eve were really Adam and Eve. See, we live in a country that is growing increasingly less and less Christian. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that we are living in a country that is less and less biblically oriented. Now, this is the culture that we're facing and all of our children are growing, going to grow up in. So we as parents, as fathers and mothers, are going to have to do our due diligence with our children. Our children are going to have to have more than just information fed into their minds. They are going to have to have that information into their heart. We will not survive just by objective thinking. If only what's in our head is what we believe, it'll fail us. We have to have converted hearts 
so that we believe not only with our intellect, but it is deeply, profoundly rooted in our heart, within our inner spirit. Where do we stand? Are we intellectual Christians only? We read the Bible, it makes a lot of sense. It sounds reasonable, why not believe it? I can go and prove through secular history that Jesus really lived. That there was a real crucifixion. I can prove that without reading the Bible. I can also prove that a man called, a man-god named Jesus lived on this earth, performed miracles, was crucified, and rose from the dead. That's documented, historically documented in the Roman annals of history. Pontius Pilate, for example, was required to give a written report of the crucifixion of Christ. So Christianity is a is a, a, a system of belief that can be believed without being a Christian. You can say, well, yes, I believe that there was a Jesus. But friend, I will tell you today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you don't know the gospel. The gospel has to be something that prioritizes your life until the gospel becomes the priority to which you are devoted and the priority to which you live for, you are not a genuine believer. Christianity has to become subjective. That means it's more than it's more than intellectual. It's within you. It's part of who you are. You are emotionally, spiritually devoted to a man who arrived on this earth from heaven as God incarnate, Jesus Christ. So the lesson we're going to have today is going to take us into the book of Romans. And I have some worksheets that will be passed out now. And uh, I need one of our boys to give Mr. Ezekiel Finnegan a copy. So you boys, please. Uh, and Matthias, would you first deliver one to Ezekiel? So let's open up to the book of Romans today. We'll be there in the book of Romans, and we will begin in this marvelous book called St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. So who was Paul the Apostle addressing when he wrote his marvelous, outstanding, divinely inspired book called The Epistle to the Romans. 
Well, he was writing to God's elect children. He was writing for all those that were in the election of God, who were called the people of God, the people that the prophet Amos said, you only have I known of all the people of the earth. The very people that Isaiah 45 Verse 5 said, are the elect people, named them. The very people that Deuteronomy 7, 6 identified as God's elect people. They're called Israelites. St. Paul did not write his epistle to the world. He wrote it to God's election. That is who he wrote it to. So we're going to start out with the very, at the very beginning of this worksheet now. And we will begin by reading from our worksheet. And I'll have Mr. Ezekiel read the first statement. All of Adam's posterity are born into a world of sin and arrive spiritually passive and dead morally depraved, and under the sentence of certain death and judgment. Now that is a significant statement, and it goes against the survey that I just spoke about with regard to evangelical Christianity in America today. Because they don't believe that man is born spiritually dead. They do not believe that, at least 55% of them do not believe that statement. So we have to make a choice here in this congregation. Do we want to believe God's word or do we want to believe the tide of the culture we live in? So I think that our choice can only be we must believe what God says. So let's read from Romans 5 verse number 12. Wherefore as by one man... Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. St. Paul was the great voice to the Roman world that Adam sinned, and in Adam's sin, all of Adam's posterity fell. They became spiritually dead, morally depraved, and their bodies go back to dust and corruption. That is the reality, church. We are born spiritually dead on arrival. We are D-O-A, dead on arrival. That is why we need a Savior. Now, there are innumerable proofs of this. In fact, the Hebrews, listen to this, the Hebrews were the very first people in the annals of history to identify the condition of mortal man. When I use the word man, it's all encompassing both man and women, men and women. 
So the Hebrews said, and they were against the whole world, we are born sinners into the world. We do not become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born sinners from the womb. We are not taught how to sin. We know how to sin. We know how to tell mama no from infancy. We, are not, we do not have to teach children how to lie. Children are born knowing the skill of lying. It's called sin nature. Now, there are innumerable proofs of this, but St. Paul, in Romans 5.12, that's a verse that everyone needs to know because it's called the classic verse. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. The greatest proof of our being born into a state of spiritual death is that as soon as we are born, we begin to die. Every day you live, you're closer and closer to death. And no one has escaped death except Elijah, who was translated by the miracle working power of his God and Enoch who was took to heaven by God who did not sustain death. There is no recording of any person who just kept on living and living. So death is inescapable. It's universal. Children die in the womb before they're born. They die being born. They die after they're born. They die in mid-age, middle age. They die any time in life. There is no assurance that we can live beyond the number of days allotted to us. So with that thought in mind, Let's move to number two. Ezekiel, would you read that one for us? Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Jesus Christ, incarnate God, the only remedy for the sin problem in Adam's fallen posterity. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. The big question, what did Jesus Christ come to save us from? And what did he save us for? Answers. We are saved from the wrath to come and for the kingdom of God. The word wrath appears 11 times in Romans and from the Greek means the punishment due upon sin and the judgment to follow. So now we are going to turn to Romans chapter 1 and this will be the opening declaration of St. Paul's epistle when he wrote to the church, to the Christians at Rome, he opened up with this declaration this is Romans chapter 1, and we will hear our reader read verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, 
separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Amen. So those words tell us that St. Paul was very bold when he wrote his epistle. He immediately announced that the purpose of this epistle was to introduce the church in Rome of this marvelous incarnate God. That Jesus, incarnate God, very God and very man, had come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic voices that all through time, the Old Testament prophets and the books of the law, together with the poetic section of the Bible, Psalms, and the book of Job had all looked forward to the arrival of a Savior, a Messiah. That was the great hope of every living Hebrew, every Hebraic Israelite that lived between Adam and Eve and the fall and the arrival of Jesus yearned for the Messiah that was to come. So that is most significant. Now, the issue, the question, what did Jesus Christ come to save us for? You will hear multi, a multiplicity of preachers today will, will try to preach the gospel, but they seldom spend very much time telling people what they're being saved from. And what they're being saved from, church, is a really significant point of truth. Because this becomes the real essence of why we believe. We are being saved from something. But we're not only being saved from something, but we're being saved for something. We're saved from the wrath of God and the judgment to come. And we're being saved for His glorious, marvelous kingdom to come. So we're not only being saved from something, but we're sa being saved for something. And this is significant because that little word wrath, W-R-A-T-H, is a word in the English language that appears 11 times in the book of Romans. Over and over, St. Paul is going to stress to the Romans gathered there in that Christian body that they are being saved from wrath to come. Now, we may not fully understand the wrath to come, but if you want to get an idea of the wrath that is to come, think of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
that sinkhole of sin was buried by brimstone and fire. And everybody in it perished. The wrath to come is God's judgment upon sin. It's not a pleasant thing. But it, and the reason we fail to know significance, the significance of that, is because our culture today does not understand the holiness of God. We have lost in the church in America today the idea of how absolutely holy God is. When Moses had gone up to the mount, remember, beloved, that he came back and his face, by being in the brightness of God's presence, the Israelites couldn't even look at, upon the face of Moses. They had to put a covering over his face. It was, it was just blinding the, the light. The holiness of God is beyond anything that I could describe in my a pitiful use of the English language. There's no way to describe the perfection and holiness of God. So when he gave Adam and Eve a perfect world, and he told them how to keep that world unblemished and perfect by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, little did our parents know the horrible consequences of disobeying God that would come. If they had not obeyed, if they had correction, if they had not disobeyed God, we would have no hospitals, no cemeteries, and we would have a perfect world. We would not be having a midterm election. We would not have anyone who was in violation of God's law living. It would be a perfect world. None of us would even have known what evil was. Because Adam and Eve, until they sinned, were without a knowledge of evil. They had no conscious knowledge of evil. What a condition that would have been in. Now we have asked the question, what are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath to come, which is the judgment upon sin. That's God's judgment upon sin. Now the marvelous truth of the gospel people is that Jesus Christ came to make the payment that was due a righteous God. He became a substitutionary sacrifice for all who believe. All who believe among his elect children are going to be redeemed and delivered from the wrath to come. That means when Christ returns, you will not stand in judgment because Christ already has been there in your place. Think about that. That when you pass 
away from this life and your, your body returns back to the dust. The moment the last breath leaves your body at death, you face a potential confrontation with God. And if you have not had your sin debt paid in this world, God help you when you die. Because God will not give you a ticket to return and try it again. The greatest words that you will ever hear will be from the lips of Jesus, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of your God. That means that your sin debt was paid. It would be like something of this nature. Let's suppose that you run a red light in Nevada. They write you out a ticket, you're going to be paying a fine. You go into the courthouse, but you find that somebody came in and paid the ticket for you. And the judge says, your debt is paid in full. You're done. You're dismissed. That is what will happen to those who know Christ. Their sin debt will have been paid. That's the essence of the good news of the gospel. But it doesn't only mean that we're saved from the wrath to come, but we're saved for the kingdom to come. Now, we may not have a full vision of what it's going to be when God's kingdom is in this earth. But can you imagine if suddenly we lived under the monarchy of a kingdom with Christ Jesus, his servant David, his servant Moses, all the prophets, all the apostles sitting on 12 thrones as judges. Can you imagine a world where there were no briars, no thorns, no thistles? Where there was no need for a jail, no need for prisons, no need for cemeteries, no need for mortuaries. We may not be able to capture what it means to live in a kingdom, a kingdom ruled by God. But the world is going to know because that is where we're moving. In the days of these kings, the prophet Daniel said... Daniel 2.44, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And it shall break and consume all these existing kingdoms. And it shall last forever and ever. So we're going to move on to number three. We're on our worksheet. We're at number three. And uh, we, did, we did not necessarily intend to finish this, so relax. Relax, don't be wondering if we're going to make it to the end, because I'll tell you we're not. <laughs> Let's go to number three, and our reader will read number three. 
God's wrath is against all ungodliness and sin. God can be clearly known by the visible, natural world we live in. Therefore, fallen man is without excuse to deny God. Now, folks, as we move into uh, Romans 1, 18 through 20, here's what I need to desperately do. God help me to desperately to, to, to be able to transmit this thought. So if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to stop right here and say a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I ask in the blessed name of Jesus Christ that this congregation be given understanding to know the depth and the breadth and the importance of St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, for it speaks to the very time in history that we now live in. And I ask this in Christ's name, for his sake, amen. St. Paul the Apostle, to reach out to the Romans, living in a culture that was in decline, a culture that is almost unmistakably like the one we're living in. So imagine St. Paul trying to talk to a bunch of Israelites in our generation who didn't go to church, didn't know anything about the Bible, didn't know anything about God, didn't know anything. Where would he start? He'd probably start right where he did to the ancient Romans. He went right to their culture and showed them the pathology of the Roman culture and where it had gone in their generation. He showed them the depth and the breadth and the sinfulness of the Roman Empire at that time. Did you know that the Romans practiced homosexuality? Do you know that they had open sexual perversion among the ancient Romans? They were almost, a, America's a replica today of ancient Rome. St. Paul waded right into the middle of that sinful generation and began to unravel for them their own condition and why they needed the gospel and why all of us need the gospel because we are living in a very wicked culture. And we are all in trouble if we do not know and have the gospel, not only in our head, but in our heart. There'll be a price to pay if we don't. So would our reader now read from verses 18, 19, and 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven unto all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Would you go ahead and read our statement then? Summary statement. God's wrath is against all ungodliness and sin. God can clearly be known by the visible, natural world we live in. Therefore, fallen man is without excuse to deny God. You have to understand, people, that St. Paul is directing this to a culture that had totally lost, if they ever knew, they had totally lost the knowledge of God. These Roman Christians 
newly believers lived in a country with a plethora of gods that were worshipped. Idolatry was everywhere in ancient Rome. There was a multiplicity of gods, the religion of Mithraism, and all kinds of other competing religions. It was a terrible, terrible cultural time of sinful, sinful, sinful living. Now, folks, you, you all know, many of you know how rapidly America is in decline. 30 years ago, we would not even dream of the, of the gender dysphoria that's being talked, this gender dysphoria that's being talked about now. We, we would not, we didn't have any, we, uh, we are moving so rapidly now that we're even preparing, the American culture is getting ready to endorse pedophilia. Do you know that? That's where we're moving. We, there is, seems to be no bottom, there's, there's no bottom to this bottomless pit that we're falling into in our culture today. Rome was falling there in, in the time of, of uh, St. Paul. They were well on their way. And I'd like to remind this congregation that for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Western Christian European cultural mold, homosexual, homosexual behavior was absolutely not tolerated. Sodomy was absolutely forbidden for hundreds of years. What we now openly condone, encourage, and bless and protect by law in America today was condemned by previous Christians in many, many, over many, many hundreds of years. The family, the family structure has always been the bulwark of a Christian nation. And look at the state of where the family in America is headed today. So what's happened to us? St. Paul says the wrath of God is going to be held against all ungodliness and sin. Why? Because there is no excuse for any culture to deny the existence of God. They can know by the natural world that there, if there is a creation, there must be a creator. You don't have to be brilliant to know that some divine being must have created this, this world that we live in. How did the world come into existence? This is a natural thing that we can understand. And when we refuse to believe and hold God in reverence and respect, then we fall away from God into a cultural decline. Do you know people that all the way up until the age of rationalism, in the early 1700s, the Western world 
was a pretty godly place to live in. Not saying it was not without sin, it was certainly had its sin, but it was, it was still a wholesome, godly culture. But what was the age of rationalism? Why was it so dangerous? Because with the Renaissance of the 1400s, with the Renaissance came what is called the rebirth or resurgence of the Greco-Roman world. And that was a step into trading faith for reason. Human reason began to be elevated over people's faith in God and belief in God. So what happened in the age of rationalism, it's preparing the world for the age of evolution. So in the 1800s, now we step up the evil with the introduction of evolution. And evolution is an outright denial of God. Evolution was believed by people who could not get past Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is an outright denial for those who believe in evolution. Because they don't believe that God created the heaven and earth. They do not believe there is a uncreated God. In fact, they believe the universe is self-existing. It was created, self-created by nothing. So evolution is a religion. It has been recognized as the tenet, primary tenet, of the religion of humanism, which has been recognized by the Supreme Court of the United States as being a religion. And, and one of the leading architects of that was Thomas Dewey, who became the founder of public education in America. And his idea was that every public school would become a religious institution of humanism. And they are there today. That is where public education is today. They have come all the way to full, full belief in the religion of humanism as they preach to our children in the public schools, colleges and universities of our time. So let's go to number four, Mr. Ezekiel, please. Sinful man knows God exists, but lives in denial and refuses to acknowledge God or to be thankful for him. Their minds and imaginations become vain and their hearts darkened. So let's read from Romans 1, 21 and 22, please. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. How many of you realize that we are made in the image and likeness of God? 
And because we are made in the image and likeness of God, there is a compelling need for all of us to worship something. If we do not worship God, we are going to find something else to worship. There is a void in the, in the mind and heart of everyone who does not know God. And when they do not love and worship God as the Creator, they're going to find something else to worship. They're going to move into idolatry. So their minds and their imaginations will become vain. And when people deny the reality and existence of God, they are moving away from all natural reality. They're going to be in deep, deep trouble. So let's move to number five. People who deny the only true and living God go into idolatry. They make false gods in the image of fallen man and bring reproach unto the holy, uncreated God. Let's read from Romans 1.23 together. Please join our reader. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. I wonder if we all really un can grab a hold of the real meaning of that statement. St. Paul is saying, look, when you deny the reality of God, when you deny there is a God, and you turn away from that God, and you become unthankful and non-appreciative of that God, then you are going to find your own idol You'll go out and start building your own idol. I'd like to name five idols that are being worshipped in America today as a replacement for God. Now, how do I define an idol? Now, this is going to be hard to, to information. So, let me do this. Let me say that an idol is anything that you look to for that which only God can give you. Whatever holds your attention, whatever holds your mind and rivets you to a focus, whatever is your passion, wherever that passion is being directed, that is where your God should be. God should be at the end of your priority for life. So what happens when people get lost in a path for accumulating only wealth and money? It's called the God of Mammon. What does the Bible say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Becomes a God. Now Abraham was a very rich man. Rich in silver, gold, cattle. But do you know that Abraham was called the friend of God? He knew 
that God was the priority of his life, Abraham knew how to handle wealth. His wealth did not own Abraham. God owned Abraham. That's the way God wants all of our wealth. We are the tenants of whatever God helps us. God gives you talents, the ability to make money, to grow wealth. It's a God thing. But God wants the glory for it. There are other people that worship pleasure. They live to be happy and merry and eat, drink, and be merry. That is called hedonism. The endless search for pleasure. Fun and games. Drinking and partying and endless games of life. That's, that becomes a way of life for people. It becomes a focus. It's almost a focus of their life. Pleasure. So that's another God. Another God is sexuality. We live in a country today that is becoming absolutely focused on sexuality. How many million pornography sites are now on the internet? It's measured in the millions, so I'm told. How many, how many Americans today are addicted with the sin of pornography? That's a form of idolatry. It's the misuse of a very godly, ordained part of life. Physical intimacy. And it takes it and totally corrupts it. And over-focus with sexuality is idolatry. Anything beyond God's defined limits becomes sinful. Let me give you another one. What about the internet? How many Americans today are addicted to the internet? Or may I say just the simple cell phone? Do you know that there are clinics now that are Re, uh, they're, they're actually helping people get weaned away from a cell phone. Because people believe they cannot live without a cell phone. Teenagers go into a panic if they lose it. You know that, do you know anyone that that happened to? You know what you need to do? Everyone needs to temporarily, periodically, put your cell phone away. You need to take that cell phone and prove to yourself that you can live without it. I promise you, you do. You, we all need to have times when the cell phone is just simply not part of our, our life. Now, it's very quiet in here, and I can understand why. 
There are times in your family when no one in your house should have a cell phone out. Cell phones are robbing families of communication. They don't know who they are. They don't even know each other. You have families, if they got a two-story house, they text each other. I'm not joking. We are turning a wonderful bit of technology into an idol. An idol is anything that we look to for something that only God can give us. Do you know if we had an urge to pray, as often as we have an urge to press that cell phone, what a difference it would make in our life. I haven't said anything about a cell phone being sinful. It's not sinful at all. It's the sinner that holds it. <laughs> and what you do with it. Physical intimacy was created by God. It's necessary to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But God forbid those millions of people that now focus their eyes on pornography and they don't, they become totally inept at bringing forth children. St. Paul did not have to contend with the cell phone. But he had about every other thing you can name to contend with. Let's go to number six. Sexual idolatry, sexual perversion, and a total disregard for the sanctification of the human body. St. Paul is following the pathology that destroyed Rome. This is the pathological development of sin that destroyed the Roman Empire, and we are following that path in America today. We are following that path today. Do you know what, what's happening in America today? Just exactly what was happening back here. When the human body becomes the focus of life. Every form of moral, sinful behavior that can be imagined with the body is now part of American culture. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 God says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, this is God pleading, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind to that which is perfect and acceptable in the will of God. Let us go now to number seven. God gave them over to vile affections 
and feminism, denial of God's plan and role for women, quickly morphed into lesbianism as women turned to unnatural forms of perversion against nature. In the ancient empire of the Roman culture, it became unfashionable to marry until late in life. Marriage became outdated in ancient Rome. They began to have fewer and fewer children because more and more women wanted to engage in career pathways. So how did, how did feminism, what produced feminism? Feminism is a byproduct of the natural tendency for men and women to move away from the role that God created and designed for the man and the woman. God's plan was for marriage, children, family, but in ancient Rome they decided no, we don't want to bother with having children. It may disfigure our bodies. It's not convenient to be parents. The Romans had a litany of reasons why they quit having children. We've borrowed that list in 21st century America today. Now we all know that feminism, the denial of God's plan for the role of the, of the woman, we know that when women deny the role for which they were created, to be a wife and a mother, that's what created lesbianism. They were not satisfied just to leave the men. They become very involved in unnatural forms of perversion and very quickly lesbianism replaced the natural union of a man and a woman. Do you people realize that as late as 1940, 92% of every American home had a married couple with children in that home. Stay-at-home moms. We have completely left that mold in the 21st century. In 1920, what happened? See, the feminist movement moved into the voting booth in 1920. How's that fared? How have we fared since 1920? See, it used to be our founding fathers said every household has one vote. The father, the mother, and the children have one vote per household. In Virginia, they required that household to own property. In Virginia, they were required to believe and know the Trinity. Imagine that before they could vote. 
Let's go to Romans. Uh, question number eight, we'll, we'll have to stop there. Men likewise left the natural use of the women, became lost in perversion, turned away from marriage, and in their burning lust turned to homosexuality. So what happened to the men? When did the men, when did the men and how did the men go south in our culture here in America? Well, they were going south at the, simultaneously with the women. But the men, in their, in their desire to turn away from women, they became sinful as well. So what did they come up with? They, when they left the natural created form of physical intimacy with the woman, then they went into homosexuality, full-fledged homosexuality. So St. Paul is giving the Romans, he's starting this epistle out by telling them, showing them, indicating to them how they got where they got. Now, depending on whether or not I have enough interest to continue this. We would pick up at question number nine and continue this study through the book of Romans. Notice we're only staying, we're, we're, we're reading only from the book of Romans. We haven't, that's where we're reading from. So that will end our first lesson.